Pastor Luke read to you uh, the verses concerning the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus. And it's recorded in all four Gospels. Of course, the church around the world is commemorating the event of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I want to read to you as we're going to cover what would take place after that in verses 45 through 48 of Luke chapter 19. That we read, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. And saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So let's pray. Father, as we come to this familiar text, sometimes we can read it and Christians are kind of like, this is out of character of Jesus to be showing this anger and the to drive out those who were selling sacrifices for the feast and the exchange of money. But, Lord, there is a reason why, and there's application for us to be made. That, Lord, may this house be a house of prayer and a house that is a witness to the reality of Jesus Christ and your goodness and compassion and your provision through the cross and resurrection. And I pray that this morning, as we're full here and coffee shops full, the classrooms are full, that, Lord, that we really would be attentive to what you want to declare to us through your word. And, Lord, that we would make application, that we would go out of this place, Lord, um, just hearing your voice that comes through your word. So we just commit this time in the teaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus says he would come into Jerusalem. Those verses that you read that the triumphal entry, as I mentioned to you, is recorded in all four Gospels. He would come down the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey. He would cross the Kidron Valley. He would come into the city of Jerusalem. We know that Luke's narrative tells us that there was a great multitude that followed Jesus from the Jordan Valley, Jericho, up to Jerusalem. They were expecting, Luke tells us, that he usher in the kingdom immediately. In other words, the people were expecting for the sky to open up, angels to descend, and for the Romans to be overthrown. We know that it, Matthew tells us that the people would come out of the city that were already there. They're coming to Jerusalem at this time because it's Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people are pouring into the holy city, probably a couple million people that are there. And Matthew says that the whole city was moved. It's where we get our word uh, seismic, uh, speaking of an earthquake. The city had never seen anything like it before. The, the Passover, this one was different. And as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, the people are waving the palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we also know that as we read the gospel account of the triumphal entry, that Jesus, as he entered into the city, would be weeping over the city. He would say, because you, your house has left you desolate. How I long to gather you to myself, but you would not come, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You do not know, as Luke records, he would say, the day of your visitation. You should have known that this your day, the things that make for your peace, and now your enemies are going to level you. And Luke here records how Jesus, as he weeping over the city, would speak of that time that the Romans would come in, 70 A.D., and they would destroy Jerusalem, and they would destroy the magnificent temple. 
So not only was he weeping over what will happen, but he was weeping over what was happening presently. And that was what was taking place at the temple during the feast. Remember, as I said, it's Passover, and many people make their way into the city at this time to celebrate. Now, don't just think, as we read this account, that Jesus coming into the city, the people are cheering, they're rejoicing. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, He then sees what's going on in the temple. So he goes in out of this anger and just overturns the money tables, you know, changers or uh, as they came in to exchange money and driving out those who bought and sold. He's just having this emotional response. Now, to get a little bit of idea of the timing of when this actually took place is that Mark's gospel tells us that at the triumphal entry, he would, when he came into the city, he would go into the temple. He would look around. He would see all the things taking place, and the hour was late, and then he would leave. He would actually leave. He would go back over to the east side of the Mount of Olives to Bethany, where he would spend the night, about two miles from Jerusalem. It would be the next day that he would return. So this here, what we read about, the cleansing of the temple, takes place on Monday, the day after Palm Sunday. And he would come back from Bethany, and Mark records, as well as Matthew, that on the way back that he would curse the fig tree because it had no fruit. It's, it's a lesson for another time. But just to say that, you know, there was a lot of religious activity that was taking place in Jerusalem with the religious leaders, with the feast taking place, with the selling of the sacrifices and the exchange of money. But there was no real fruit unto God. So he then goes in and he cleanses the temple. Now, the cleansing of the temple, listen, is recorded in all four Gospels. But here's the thing that we need to remember. In John's account of the cleansing of the temple, it is not during this time. This is the last week of Jesus' ministry uh, as he comes in and cleanses the temple. It's not during this time the synoptic Gospels record. But actually, John records that he would come into the temple and cleanse it in the first year of his ministry. John chapter 2, right after he uh, did his first miracle and turning water into wine there at Canaan. And there were actually two times, twice that he cleansed the temple. Now, in John's gospel, it indicates and it tells us that he made a whip of cords. The synoptic writers, that is uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do not mention that. In John's gospel, he would say, as he rebuked the religious leaders, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Here at this time, in the last week of his ministry, he would say, my house is a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. So there was two cleansings that took place in Jesus' ministry. And again, I've heard teachings on, well, Jesus was really feeling the pressure at this point. And that's why he cursed the fig tree. And, and he came in and he was disgusted by everything that was going on, kind of lost it emotionally. He blew up. It shows his humanity in all of this, kind of like he lost his cool. Now, that's what I do when I lose my cool. That's what I do when I get mad. Uh, and Jesus here, he had a righteous anger. He did not sin. 
He didn't just lose it emotionally. Uh, but as we've discussed, Jesus at time, he would be angry at those religious leaders, and it was a righteous anger. You might recall the account up in the Galilee that the religious leaders, when they began to come against Jesus because his disciples were plucking heads of grain in the field on the Sabbath, they said that's unlawful. We know that right after that, they would go into the synagogue there in Capernaum. They're watching Jesus. There's a man in the back with a withered hand, and they're watching to see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath day because they believed that was unlawful. And Jesus comes into that synagogue at that time in Capernaum, and he knew what they were doing. They're, they're wanting to accuse him. And Jesus, it tells us, I believe Mark's gospel, that he looked at them with anger. Because they didn't care about the people. They're trying to, to trap him so they could accuse him. Paul writes to you and to me in Ephesians chapter 5, be angry, but do not sin. So Jesus, looking at what was taking place at this time in the temple proper, it is the second time that it drove out those who bought and sold. Now in John's gospel, in the first cleansing of the temple, that the religious leaders asked them, they said, what sign do you do these things do you show us and jesus responded by saying destroy this temple and i'll raise it up in three days and they're going what do you mean it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and and jesus was talking of course about his resurrection they didn't understand that another time up in the galilee that they said show us a sign and jesus said no sign will be given to you except for the sign of jonah and just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was speaking about his death, burial, and resurrection. People will say to you and to me, you know, show me a sign. Prove that Jesus is the Son of God. You always take him to the, to the cross. You take him to the fact that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem, that he's not there. Tell them about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that was a sign not only to those religious leaders, that generation, but it is a sign to every generation. He says here, this is my father's house. You've made it a house of merchandise. And then the second accusation, you've made it this house a den of thieves. Now, to give us a little bit of background, why they were doing this and, and what was taking place at this time, you read the Old Testament, and Solomon built the first temple. You read about that in First Kings and Second Chronicles. It was a magnificent building, uh, overlaid with gold and ornate stones. And we know that the temple was everything to the Jews. It was the place of worship, of sacrifice. But as you continue through that 400 years of the first temple period, you know that after Solomon, he, his death, that Rehoboam comes uh, to the throne. It was at that time that the ten northern tribes broke away from the house of Judah. The house of Judah was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. The ten northern tribes, they, they made up the house of Israel. So when you go through the Old Testament, particularly as you go through First and Second Kings, it's talking about the different kings. Sometimes the kings of Israel, all of them were idol worshipers. Nineteen kings of the house of Israel, all of them were terrible kings. In the house of Judah, again, where Jerusalem was and this magnificent temple was. Well, Jeroboam, the first king of the house of Israel, 
He, he doesn't want the people to go to Jerusalem from up north. He doesn't want them to, to go and worship there because then they're going to want to unite with their brethren and then they're going to come and kill me. So what he does is he builds two temples, smaller tent, temples, places of sacrifices. One was at Dan, which is in the very northern part of the country. Matter of fact, if you go to Israel with us, we go to that where they've excavated that temple. And then another one in Bethel. So idol worship became a big part of the house of Israel. Again, Baal worship, Astaroth, it went from bad to worse till finally they went off into captivity because they ignored the warnings of the prophets to turn back to the Lord. They went off into captivity in about 720 B.C. by the Assyrians. Now, the house of Judah did a little bit better in that they had some good kings. They had some good kings like Uzziah. They had um, Asa. They had uh, Hezekiah. But they also had a problem with idol worship as well. And when you read about the reign of, for example, Ahaz during the time of Isaiah the prophet, he was a terrible king. He plunged the nation deep into idol worship and occultic practices and, and violence and immorality. And, and they were so bad morally that they were actually burning their children on the arms of Moloch in the Gehenna Valley, sacrificing them. We know that when Manasseh came to the throne, Manasseh ruled longer than any other king in, in Judah, 55 years. And he plunged the nation deep into idol worship, false worship, occultic practices, um, you know, worshiping every kind of false idol there was, uh, sacrificing their children there in the valley of Gehenna. And it is at that point the Lord said, okay, you're going to go into captivity, and they would in 605 beginning uh, by the Babylonians. So they would be out of the land. And as they were out of the land, and again, uh, the temple was polluted at that time while they were there. Uh, Ahaz, Manasseh brought idol worship. They go into captivity for 70 years. And as they were out, they could no longer go to the temple. So the focal point would then change in their worship to developing the synagogue. You read about the synagogue in the Gospels, right? The synagogue was kind of like church, what we're doing, where the Jews would meet. In any village or city where there's 10 Jewish males or more, they would have a synagogue. Um, in Jerusalem, it is believed at this time of Jesus that there was close to 500 synagogues that, that were in place. But Ezekiel was one, they believed, that really helped institute the synagogue. And also, during the first temple period, before they went off into captivity, that there would be just... Uh, the Old Testament really wasn't put together like what we have in our Bible. It was different books that were there. And after the, cap you know, the, the captivity, that is, after they would be taken off into captivity, there would be not only the synagogue worship being established, but there would be this renewed interest in the Old Testament scriptures. They began to put it together, the Mishnah tells us. And Ezra was one that was instrumental in doing that. He would come back after the captivity back to Jerusalem. Before a collection of books. Now you might recall Josiah, the last of the good kings in Judah. They're cleaning out the temple after his grandfather Manasseh had just just really polluted the temple, closed it off, idols in it. He orders that they clean the temple up. And they're cleaning it up, and then somewhere in the temple, underneath all the trash, they find a copy of the book of the law. 
they don't know if that was just the book of Deuteronomy or if that was all of the Torah. But they come and they read it to Josiah. He had never heard the word. Can you imagine if there was not a single Bible that was in our nation? And, and all of a sudden they bring it, they read it, and he is quickened in his heart, cut to the heart. He tears his clothes and he says, so wonder we're going through difficulty. We've forsaken the, the word of God. So he orders there to be the cleansing of the temple, and he orders there to be a Passover and to get rid of the idols. And he brings reforms. There was somewhat of a revival, but it didn't really take to the heart of the people. And we've talked about this specifically in our Daniel study. Um, They would go right back into idol worship after Josiah and then eventually into captivity. But in the first temple period, There was not a knowledge of the scriptures. They had come to that place where they neglected the word of God, and they really had no understanding of what it said. And it reminds me a little bit of what we're seeing kind of a trend in the church today. There is not a priority of going through the scriptures, the books of the scripture. In many circles of Christianity, it's just little tidbits, you know, little sermonettes, uh, little pieces of scripture. We're more interested in motivating the people and and lifestyles, you know, practical lifestyle application and and you know prosperity and all of this. And there's is a neglecting of the word of God. And I pray for us here at Calvary Chapel and as long as I'm pastor here, that we will go through the word of God chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Because that is what's going to grow you and mature you and keep you in that place of being safe because there's a lot of voices that are out there. So they really didn't have any context of what the scripture says. And what happened was is that temple became their trust. They trusted in the temple. And Jeremiah comes along and says to the religious leaders, you need to turn back to the Lord. Uh, You see Ezekiel, he would actually go off in the captivity in the second deportation. There was three times that Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. The first time, Daniel's taken off and his friends. Ezekiel, the second time, finally he came in the third time and destroyed the temple. But here's Jeremiah saying the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. They're going to build ramps and, and, and tear down these walls and destroy the city. And the religious leaders are saying, no, they're not. And the false prophets are saying, it's not going to happen. Don't listen to Jeremiah. You know, uh, the captivity that has begun is only going to last a couple of years. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go down. Nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem because we have the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. They put their trust in a place and in the structure and not in the Lord. It's kind of like what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you've read that chapter. At the end of the days of the judges, the children of Israel go to war against the Philistines. They get defeated soundly. So they come back to Shiloh there, and they say, hey, let's do this. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant. We will take it, and it will lead us into victory as we take it out to battle. They had reduced God to an it. This box is going to save us. And, of course, as you read 1 Samuel chapter 4, the children of Israel were defeated and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Ezekiel, he speaks about in this first temple period that the glory of the Lord, as he saw it and he writes about it, would eventually leave the temple and, and, and leave and go over the Mount of Olives. So they identified in the building the structure more than the Lord himself. And again, there's a lesson in that for us. Even as David, remember at the end of 2 Samuel, that, that last chapter, 
there's that account of David. He counted the people. And then a plague would come because the Lord was angry at David for doing that. And people say, that was kind of harsh. But you see, David, who was a man after God's own heart, at that time he'd become very prideful. He wanted to count the people to see how strong that he was. And he had forgotten that his strength was in the Lord. All those psalms that he wrote. And even Job said, why do you want to count the people? Now, during this time, it's interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that the Romans come along and they say, we want to count the people. We want to know how many people are coming into Jerusalem. So, you know, they can dispatch soldiers. They can plan for it. The religious leaders say, please, don't count the people. Don't count them because what happened to David last time we counted the people. So what they did is they counted the sacrifices. He said, you can do that. And Josephus writes that they counted 256,000 sheep that were sacrificed at one Passover during this time. It's a lot of sheep. The blood is they would wash off the, the, the place where they did the sacrifices with water, and they, the blood and the water mix would run down the Temple Mount into a valley, that's the Kidron Valley, into a brook that's called the Brook Kidron and there the water would mix with the blood, and it became muddy. It became dark. That's why Kidron means. And I think about John's gospel that tells us as Jesus made his way to the garden that he crossed the brook Kidron. And I wonder what he thought is that water would be murky. The sacrifices they're doing and in the blood and the water mixed, knowing that the next days he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, that the soldiers would thrust the spear up into his chest, and out came what? The blood and the water, as he's the Passover lamb that died for you and for me. Interesting as you think about these things. So they identified with the building, and the temple would be rebuilt after the captivity. Zerubbabel comes back. It was a very modest building. And, and it would be Herod the Great that expanded the temple, remodeling project. That's why the religious leader said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. They remodeled it. It became a magnificent structure, and, and it was one of the wonders of the world. And here, Jesus, as he indicts the religious leaders, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. And where he's quoting from is Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. I'll read it to you. That the Lord says, even then I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer, listen, for all the nations. For all the nations. You see, to the Jews, there was two groups of people. There was the Jews and there was the Gentiles. And Isaiah, who talked about in that chapter how Israel was to be a light to the nations. The book of Deuteronomy speaks about how the other nations would see that Israel's, you know, as they worshiped the true and the living God, as he blessed them and prospered them, that they, it would be a testimony to them. It would be a witness to them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is truly the true and only God. So God's intent is that the temple be a house of prayer for all the nations. And Solomon even speaks about that in his prayer of dedication. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 8. Lord, your eyes will always be on this place, and you will hear your people uh, as your eyes are set. And hearing the prayers of the people, that's why Daniel, when he's praying, 
he opened his window towards Jerusalem. He's praying towards Jerusalem. He's not praying at Jerusalem, but towards Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where they believed that God's eye was always on that place and would hear them. And then he would also speak about the foreigner, not of Israel, that would come. And they would see the splendor of the temple. And they would see the goodness of the Lord and the provision of the Lord. And they would come to know the true and the living God. So they're dispersed. They sin, first temple period. They're dispersed throughout the known world. After the siege of, of Babylon, they lost their sovereignty, beginning in 605 B.C. They are under the submission of somebody. After the Babylonians, it was the Medo-Persian Empire. After them, it was the Grecian Empire. And then the Romans that would be ruling during this time that Jesus is ministering. And as they would come to Jerusalem in the second temple period... It brought some problems because the Jews are dispersed. They're in Europe. They're in uh, Rome. They're in, uh, you know, parts of, of Greece. They're in Asia Minor. They're in northern Africa. Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross for Jesus, that's northern Africa. They're in Persia. For somebody to come and to bring an animal was not very practical. Travel was very difficult. For people to travel to Jerusalem three times a year wasn't practical to celebrate major feasts. If you came, it was dangerous. It cost a lot, your life savings. But it was a dream for every Jew, wherever they were at, to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Many of them would stay for the 50 days after Passover, the Pentecost. And we see evidence of that in Acts chapter 2, as we see that those nations that are mentioned, that they're hearing when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples there in that upper room. But as they came, there, there was a large number. And not only did you have the, the Hebrew, uh, Hebrews of Hebrews, like Paul, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a tribe of Benjamin. But you had the Hellenist Jews as well that had a Greek background and Greek influence. And that played a major role in what was taking place here. You read in Acts chapter 6, the synagogue of the freedmen uh, contended with Stephen, the first martyr that we have recorded in the scriptures in the church. And there were ones, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those of Cilicia. And by the way, some believe that Paul maybe perhaps was a rabbi in that synagogue, but that's a, a debate uh, because uh, Paul was not a Hellenist Jew if they were. But anyway, we know that they had influence as well. So it wouldn't be practical to bring this animal. By the time you traveled all this distance, that poor animal, there'd be nothing left of it. It would not be without spot or blemish. Also, there was another problem with the exchange of money. They only would take, they're the religious leaders, temple money. That is, it had to be in coinage that was very specific. It had to be in a temple shekel, not just any coinage. Remember during this week, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You know, show me a coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar. You could not bring that that coinage up and offer it to the Lord. That was blasphemy, or if it had Candace on it. So they had to exchange it for temple shekels. And it was a good solution. It was a good idea initially. So people are making their pilgrimage into the temple. And they would come in, and it's believed as they've done excavations on the south side of, of the Temple Mount, the original steps, people would go there. There's three gates that they found. And it would be under those, those gates that they found, they believe were caverns, 
where they had this setup of all the animals in exchange of money. Well, when Rome came in to take power, they wanted to control the leadership of Israel. There's no king, so how are we going to do that? It's through the high priest. And what happened was, is they came through and they said, we want to work with priests. We don't care about genealogy. We don't care if they're descendants of Aaron or, you know, of Zadok. We don't care <coughs> their qualifications. We don't care if they're godly. We only care if they work with us and appease us and do what we tell them to do. So here came the chief priests, a lot of them Sadducees, that they were politically motivated. They worked with Rome. And also, we're going to give it to the family that's the highest bidder. So Annas would be appointed in 6 AD to be the high priest. They appoint him as the high priest for 10 years. And then Rome would come along and say, you can't be high priest for the rest of your life. You're going to have to change that. And they were wanting to give it to the one who was the highest bidder, Annas. He begins to oversee the exchange of money and the selling of the animals, the sacrifices. And he's ripping the people off. He's making a killing. And that's what Jesus is seeing. He made so much money, he was able to buy the high priestly office for five of his sons. So the Annas family had the power from the time 6 A.D. to 66 A.D. Caiaphas, does that ring a bell with you? Caiaphas was the official high priest during this time. He oversaw the Sanhedrin council that Jesus faced. But remember in John's account that Jesus, he went on three trials before the religious leaders. The first one was Annas. And a servant came and struck Anna, or Jesus, the, the servant of Annas. Annas was the power behind a high priestly office. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was overseeing the, the Sanhedrin council. Matter of fact, the youngest of Anna's son was killed by the Jews in 66 AD as he was friendly to Rome. He aligned himself with Rome. That's when the rebellion, the Jewish revolt began in 66 AD that lead to the second temple being destroyed in Jerusalem that Jesus is weeping about here in Luke's gospel. All right? So with all that in mind, here is all these people being ripped off. Here's all these people being taken advantage of. And Jesus comes in and he sees all this that has taken place. The religious leaders are concerned. The, the chief priests, Annas and them, that, that Rome is going to, to come against us. The city's in an uproar. They're waving the palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which was a symbol of political freedom. They expect that the Romans are going to be overthrown. It's a very sensitive situation. They want to destroy Jesus right now because not only are they afraid they're going to lose their authority, but also what he did in coming into the temple and cleansing the temple. It's interesting as Jesus says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You see, what was going on during this time as well, as the Greeks were coming to the feast. We see that in John chapter 12, a familiar portion of scripture, I'll read it to you, that there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, and they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus said that, most assuredly, I say to you, you go and tell those Greeks this, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. 
These guys want to really see me? They must see me in the light of my death and burial and my resurrection. Why were the Greeks coming? They were coming because they believed in many gods. But they were coming because they believed greater the temple, greater the God. Here is this magnificent temple that is there. They're coming. They hear of Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. They come in. It's no different than the Roman marketplaces, no different than the world. All this activity that's going on. But it was not a witness to the Lord. It was a terrible witness to the Lord. So it causes us to pause here this morning with all in the background. You can see why Jesus said, this is my father's house. He never called it the temple. He said, this is my father's house. They would go in the worshiper, and they'd go through the cleansing pools, and then they would buy a sacrifice, and they did that by the, the hundreds of thousands. Jesus, is never recorded, went through the cleansing pools because he was without sin. He never bought a sacrifice because he was the sacrifice that died for our sins. And he says, my father's house which is a house of prayer you've made into a den of thieves. It is a house of prayer for all the nations. So I just want to end with this, please. What do people see with you and me? What do they see when they come into this house? They were coming because they were desperate, the Greeks. They were searching for truth. They were wondering. They're wondering about this God of Israel. And yet... All they saw was merchandising. All they saw was harshness. They didn't see anything of the Lord. Unfortunately, people do see that today. They see the TV evangelists that, you know, in their prosperity message and ripping people off and, and all this or other things that take place, the progressive theology that's growing and just live any way that you want. Listen, there is another temple that is standing today, and that temple is you. We are living stones being fitted together, as, as Peter writes, in this holy habitation. It's a living temple. So what did they see with you and me? What did they see when they come into our homes? What did they see when they come to Calvary Chapel? People who are desperate, because all of us know those who are linked to us in our lives that are wondering and wrestling, and they're confused, and they wonder if there's any truth, and what is everything leading to, and what's this life all about? And we have a message. We can be a light to them. And may this always be a house of prayer, that we are praying for those who are linked to us in our lives, to this community, for our nation, because there's a lot of darkness and confusion and anxiety and People are feeling more anxious today than ever before. And so are there things in our lives that really need to be cast out? Are there things going on in our homes that need to be cast out? Even in the church, we need to always remember that our trust is the Lord, and this is a house of prayer and of the gospel to be a light to others. We're to be given to hospitality. Remember Paul wrote that in the book of Romans? Hospitality, in that word, is hospital. We're to be a hospital for those who desperately need to see and hear and know about the true and living God. There are people that are saying, I wish to see Jesus. 
So let's show them Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We could talk so much more on this. But, Lord, I do pray that we would be ones that we would remember our trust is in you. It isn't in other things. It's in you alone. And so, Father, I thank you that we can be here and be reminded of this. As Jesus rides into our lives and, and sees what's going on in our hearts and in our homes and even in this church, what is it that he sees? And I pray that he sees the reality of, of people who love you and trust you and growing in your word, the people that have compassion for others, desiring to be a voice of truth, standing on righteousness and desiring, Lord, to give them the greatest news ever declared, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus Christ has provided forgiveness and salvation through his death, that as they say we wished really to see Jesus, that they would see him through the light of his burial, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I want to pray this morning for anyone who is here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, and that is for salvation and forgiveness. He is your salvation. You cannot save yourself. And the Bible says you are to repent. Turn directions, repent from the way you're living in your sins and turn to Jesus and come right where you are and cry out to him and say, Jesus, I know you're my salvation. Even as you said, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord to realize you're a sinner and need to be forgiven and become a new creation, a new heart so you can live for him to be brought into the family of God. He says, come right now. Today is the day of salvation. Believing that he died for you and he rose from the grave. And you can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me and you rose again and I ask that you be my Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me into the family of God. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I do want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And Lord, even as those women on that first day of the week on Resurrection Sunday that were told to go out and tell, you tell others, tell the disciples that he is risen, he's alive, and the tomb is empty, that we would go out with that message as well. So Lord, bless everyone as we leave this place, being a light to the people around us. And again, not only believe in the gospel, and given the message of the gospel, but living the gospel as well in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.